It is, uh, it seems like it's one of those weeks. Lots of, lots of weight was, uh, was brought in here this morning. And if that's what you're feeling, if you're, uh, if you're feeling the weight of heaviness of things this morning, I just want to remind you, God's got this too. He has you in His hand, no matter what comes, no matter what we're dealing with, no matter what we're feeling, He has you in His hand. He has His entire attention focused on you. And yeah, I know we don't understand how that's possible. That He understands the things that grab you and feel out of your control and hold your attention away from Him. And He's got the answer for that. And it is His desire, no matter the price, to take you home. As we open the Word into Matthew 8 today, we're finishing that chapter that we've been in for a while now. And as we wrap it up, it's a, it's a climactic ending that is easily missed as a climax. It's Matthew chapter 8, if you have your Bibles with you. Um, it's beginning in chapter 20, or verse 24. Um, or 20, I'm sorry, 28. If you have your device with you, it's in the same place. Matthew chapter 8, beginning verse 28. We're going to finish the end of the chapter. This is how what it says in the New King James Version. When we had come to the other side of the country, or other side to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them, that is the the, the swine, fled. And they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from the region. This story is also found in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8. It has a few more details there, so if you want to turn there and take a look, I'm going to be picking up some details out of those places as we work through this story this morning. But I want to give you a little background moment. Remember, nothing happens without a context. Nothing in your life, nothing in my life, nothing in their life happens without a context. So recognize what's been going on for the last 24 hours. It has been crazy. Capital K, crazy. It has been completely out of their conception of what the world can possibly be. These men have no place to put the events of the last 24 hours. 
There's no place to figure, there's no context, there's no, no idea about where this can go. 24 hours ago, Sabbath morning, Jesus sees a big multitude of people gathering and he starts this little sermon. This little earth-shaking, completely disorienting sermon. He says things like, People who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, those are the people who are going to be filled. He says those who recognize their spiritual poverty, they are the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he takes the standards of their understandings of what could be done. Things like, hey, if you're going to want to get rid of your wife, write her a letter of divorcement, kick her out, you're done with her. And he says, no, you can't divorce your wife, just throw her aside like that. It's not to be done. He starts to raise the standard of their understanding of what behaviors and choices and even motivations are supposed to be like. Then, just as he's about to come down from this revolutionary sermonizing, the crowd is parted by this half-crazed, finger-falling-off, blind-eyes, oozing-pus leper who runs through the crowd up to Jesus. Jesus then lays his hand on the guy and heals him. They don't know whether to cough, spit, or pass out. Jesus walks down the hill. As he enters into Capernaum, a centurion comes up to him and asks for his help. Jesus says, this guy has more faith than anybody else I've ever met in all of Israel. And he heals the man's servant who's far away, some other place. Just heals him with a word. Then he goes into Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is sick. So he heals her too. She gets up and serves him. As the Sabbath ends, crowds of people start coming into Peter's house. And as more and more people gather in Peter's house, they're in, in their midst, he just heals them all. In fact, the Bible says he heals every single one of them. Stop looking at this from the, from the 21st century. As you're reading a story and just kind of thumbing your way through it, imagine what this felt like to those 12 guys who'd gotten in the boat with him. How mind-blowing this day had been. One simple day. Life-altering day. As the day closes and the, sun, and the sun sets, it's gotten into night and Jesus says to the disciples, let's get in the boat and cross to the other side. He's going from the northwest to the southeast of the lake. They head down to the Gadarenes or the Gergesenes. Those are the names of two towns in that region. This is the Greek, the Roman side. This is the Gentile side of the lake. And he crosses over to the Gentile side. In the midst of the process, it gets crazy on the lake. Wind starts to blow. Waves start to grow. They start to take on a bunch of water. They are sure that they are going to die. There are experienced sailors who have been on this lake their whole life. And those guys are freaking out. When the experienced sailors are freaking out, start freaking out. I was crossing... Raccoon Straits in the bay on a, uh, a new year, or on a, uh, yeah, on a New Year's night. So it was probably close to New Year's morning. We had crossed that day 
across the bay. We had gone up to the uh, north side of the bay. We had turned around, and as night was gathering, wind and rain and a storm came blowing through the Golden Gate. And as this wind and rain and storm comes blowing through, we basically sent all the non-sailors below. We told them, you guys, go go below, hang on. Raccoon Straits is the place where the wind blowing through the Golden Gate Bridge is narrowed between Angel Island and Tiburon. Okay? So when you know when you bring something into that, to a narrower space, it increases the pressure, and in that space it increases the wind speed. We had currents going crazy because of the storm, wind, the wind going crazy because of the storm. You couldn't see anything, but the three of us who had been on the, on the bay a lot, we're having a blast. The boat is heeled over hard at about 30 degrees and we're pounding through the waves. We're ripping along as fast as this boat can go. It's not a very fast boat, but it's very exciting movement. Wind, rain, cold. We got slickers on. We got life vests on. We're good. We're having a great time. We actually had one poor passenger refuse to go below and she sat there Freezing and shivering and nervous and scared while all of us were just having a good time. Peter, James, John are all in this moment frightened by the storm. These are the experienced sailors. These are the guys who've been out here in storms before. They've taken on water before. They know what they can bail. They know what the boat can do. They know when they're okay, and they know when they're not. And Jesus, the carpenter, non-sailor, is asleep. Storm's going crazy. Jesus, the, the disciples go over and wake up the sleeping Jesus who stands up speaks to the wind and speaks to the waves. Now, you you can't just let that sentence go by. He speaks to the wind and he speaks to the waves and the waves calm and the wind dies down and the lake becomes placid and easy for the evening sail. And the last words we hear from the disciples before we start the story of being on the other shore is what manner of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey. He's preached a revolutionary sermon on a mountain like Moses. He's healed a leper by touching him. He's healed a centurion's servant by proxy. He's healed everybody in the city of Capernaum. When those folks woke up this Sunday morning, there wasn't an ache in town. And the disciples have just seen him calm the storm. He speaks and creation responds. Can you see what Matthew is trying to teach us as he recounts the story? He who is greater than Moses... He who has control over disease. He who can heal with a word and calm even creation. That's who's in the boat. 
they arrive at the other shore, dumbfounded still. You know, this is one of those few stories in the Bible where you don't hear from Peter. You don't hear a word. Nobody says anything other than Jesus. They arrive at the other shore. Now, I've, I've been on the, in, in the shore. It's a pretty sure place because there's only one cliff like this, one hill that runs down into the water on the whole of the Sea of Galilee. So we're pretty certain about this place. And it's, it's a nice, gradual sort of rising bank. You come in the bank. It's typical stony bank along the, along the Sea of Galilee. And it just has a nice, gentle rise to it as it rises up into the hills in the distance. But off to the south is this one hill that sweeps up and drops in a steep bank right into the Sea of Galilee. Pretty likely the right spot because geography doesn't change a lot over time. As they land the boat, coming out of the nearby graves, the tombs, are either one or two people. We don't know for sure because Matthew sees two. Maybe he didn't have his glasses on that day. Mark and Luke see one. I go with Mark and Luke personally. The reason I do that is because I know Luke was a researcher. Okay? Luke did his background research. And it's two against one. That's my reason. I'm sticking with it. Whether one or two, they come rushing out. And as this, as this man comes rushing out toward Jesus, we don't know his intent. We know his state. We know that he's demon-possessed. In fact, he's not singularly demon-possessed. He's demon-possessed with a legion of demons. He charges Jesus. My thinking, I don't know, my expectation perhaps, that Jesus may be his enemy. He may be charging after him to do him harm. As he comes running toward Jesus, comes face-to-face with Jesus, something takes over. Mark and Luke recorded. It says that as he gets near to Jesus, he falls down on his face in a posture of worship. Even the demons recognize the authority of the creator of the universe. Matthew just built another rung on the ladder. If you've been climbing the ladder, he just said, Hey, disease, distance, creation, and even demons fall at his feet. And there where the posture on the ground begins a conversation between Jesus and this legion of doom that's inside this man. They beg him. They ask him, you have, they, well, first they declare to him, you, you son of God. Wouldn't you wish that was the, the word people threw out at you? You, you son of God. Why are you here? Have you come before it is our time to torment us? They know it's not the end yet, and what's he there messing with them for? And they beg him not to cast them into the abyss. Read Revelation chapter 20. They beg not to be cast into the abyss. And instead, they say, would you just cast us into the swine over there? Devil's always got a bargain for you, doesn't he? Would you just cast us into the swine? Jesus' answer is simple. Go. Go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. And off they go. Out of the man. Into the pigs. Pigs rush down the hill into the sea and they all drown. The herdsmen of the pigs. Think about that job. Pig herder. The herdsmen of the pigs go running off into the villages and towns to tell the story 
of Jesus. Interesting. They're not in favor of this story. They're not in favor of Jesus. They're certainly not in favor of losing 2,000 pigs. But they go off to tell the story. And even in the negative, the story draws a crowd. And we don't know how long it took the crowd to get there, but in the meantime, they have cleaned this man who was naked and bleeding. One of the disciples records that, or one of the, the authors records uh, that he had been cutting himself with rocks while they're in the tombs. And so they bring him to his senses, wash him, find some clothes for him. And I'm wondering how that happened. Did the disciples, did the, did the disciples donate pieces and parts of their clothing? You know, someone has a little extra of this and someone has a little extra of that. Somebody brought along a change of clothes in case they got wet overnight and now they're having to hand it off to this guy. By the time the crowd gets large enough to find its voice, now I imagine the first few people who show up don't say a word because you got once crazy, frightening, menacing guy sitting there clean, clothed, and in his right mind. And so I imagine the first group is just like awe. But a crowd, as it gets big enough, begins to find its voice. One person in opposition will often be quiet. Fifty people in opposition will stand as one and shout you down. And so they decide to challenge Jesus. And what's the challenge? Uh, Excuse me, sir. You just killed off our entire herd. Could you leave now? Haven't you done enough damage around here? Can't you just get you and your little crowd of mutes over there and go? Jesus starts to get into the boat. And there alongside him is a man caught between two worlds. Does he go with Jesus? Does he stay? Everything about the world where he lives is a mess for him. His reputation is completely ruined. Who is ever going to give this man a job? He's the crazy guy. Lived out in the tombs naked. Cutting himself with rocks. I mean, the scars are still on his arms and legs and body. Who's going to ever hire this guy? Will his family let him in the house? They've seen what letting him in the house will do. They've seen the kind of crazy behavior this guy has has performed. None of us has a relative like this guy. At least if you do... He's not your house. So he asks Jesus, can I go with you? Jesus says, no. Go to your home and tell the people at your home what's just been done for you. It's kind of the end of the story. But I want you to pick up a piece here and there as we went along. Do you remember that when the angels announced the birth of Jesus, it was herdsmen who went to the cities and towns and the hills around and told the story of the coming Messiah. It's an interesting parallel. Because when Jesus went to the Greeks and the Romans living on the far side of the lake, it was herdsmen who went and told the story of the arrival of the Messiah. It's interesting. When you look at the life that's being displayed here, why does Jesus pay attention to this guy? It almost appears that the whole trip was about this guy. 
The trip across the water was just for this person. The disciples and Jesus get in a boat, suffer through a storm, arrive after being there in the boat all night, the next morning, and this is the guy. There's a crazy, amazing, cool thing about God right here. That the suffering of humanity has the full attention of God at all times. This man is suffering in a way that probably we've never seen or imagined. And here he is in front of Jesus and Jesus says nothing to anyone else. He simply speaks to the man, deals with his problem, casts out his demons, heals him of his tragic situation. Here's the interesting thing in modern times. I wonder what kind of attention span we have. Why is Jesus here? It's this guy. It's the only thing I can figure. How is this man really different from the suffering of the people around us? He might be an extreme case, right? He's homeless. He's helpless. He's unable to overcome the demons inside. Sound familiar in the 21st century? He's being controlled by something outside himself. Why do you think the people send Jesus away? The text really says, Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a boat that was on the other side of the lake last night. And a demon-possessed man came out, what's the last two words? To meet him. This is not an accidental encounter. Jesus doesn't have those. Jesus is going about a very specific business while he's on our planet. And his business this day is this guy. He's come across the lake to meet this guy. I wonder how many times I avoid the people who are in this kind of situation. And I, I see them on the roadside. Camped out, carrying signs. Life overwhelmed by the demons that haunt them. Homeless, sometimes cutting themselves. Stabbing themselves with needles or popping things in their mouth to try to control all the craziness inside their heads. Wow. This is our guy. This is our world. This is where we live. Very much in our face, day after day. I don't know that I have the answer, but I'm pretty sure the government doesn't. They've been trying for years, and they just seem to be making things worse. Typical. But I do think the church might. And and not just ours, but the church if Christians around the country really started figuring out what to do face-to-face, one-to-one, if we went out to meet him or her. I don't know if you've, if you've been at, at gathering in here at the church, 
It's a simple, interactive way to, to make an impact and to get accustomed to the idea of being with someone whose demons are destroying their lives. Let me ask you, what does it mean to be demon-possessed? It means really that you're not in control of your faculties and of your own life, right? Is that kind of what this seems like to you? You're not actually in control of what's happening in your life. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you a rageaholic? Are you a shopaholic? Are you an alcoholic? Is there something in you that gets control of you? Something that when you face it, you lose it. What's different about that? It may not have a name like Legion, but it has a name. What is there in your life? What is there in my life that when I face it, I'm powerless? Isn't it the same? Just wondering. For a long time, he'd been homeless and naked. Really glad that most of the homeless people I run into were not naked. In fact, I'm pretty sure I've never run into one that was actually naked. And living in the tombs outside of town. Is that a good definition of a life out of control? Is that on a continuum from our anger to our homelessness? From our habit to our complete loss of control? Isn't it all the same line? Then all the people of the region asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. This is perhaps the most telling of them all and one of the most difficult ones. You know why they asked Jesus to leave? 2,000 pigs. The cost for the intervention in this man's life was too high. Isn't that the picture? Isn't that that what it seems? The economic damage to their community was too high for the saving of this one guy. The cost... Embarrassment. Dirt. Discomfort. Was too high. It's a pretty, pretty understandable thing, isn't it? If, if Jesus came to one of us and said, okay, your entire bank account and your entire 401k for one person, would we make that deal? If it was your kid, would you make that deal? 
Maybe. I hope so. If it was your parent? What if it was a neighbor? Your next door neighbor? If Jesus said, your entire bank account, your entire 401k, all that supplies your support for your neighbor's salvation, would you be in? 2,000 pigs is a big herd. It's going to make a major impact on these people, and it's all negative. Would we be in? Tougher decision, huh? If it was somebody who was the scourge of your neighborhood, your worst neighbor, the person you keep your kids away from, the person whose house you walk across the street to avoid... What if it was that person? Just that one person. You see, that's the cost here. And that's why they send Jesus away. I think we do it all the time. Jesus confronts us with some things that are not nearly this hard. And we say, you know, go away and and, and come back another day. We'll talk again later. It's an interesting little story, isn't it? It can be easily passed over as just Jesus shows up on another shore, heals this guy, leaves, and leaves the guy there. But it's a little more personal than that. It's about the attention God gives to one hurting person. It's about a life that's gotten so crazy out of control, nobody wants them around anymore. And it's about the cost of saving that life. Oh, and incidentally, it's about Matthew saying, there is no problem too big for Jesus. At the end of the day, It's about God being accessible, Jesus' sacrifice being enough, and the amazing challenge to the follower of Jesus to be willing to surrender what we think is ours to save what is actually His. Let's pray. Father God, these little stories get personal and tough sometimes. Help us not to chicken out when we read them but to face the implications not for people who lived in the first century, but for ourselves. Help us to see the call in our life in this moment to recognize the thing that, that just takes us away from controlling. Our favorite sin 
something we've given into our entire life. Or today, I would like you to confront it in us. I would like you to confront it in me. And bring to my understanding what it is and that you are the answer. Father, we shy away from the big challenges. And we support and we throw our testimony and our hope to be seen as virtuous behind projects that become public. Help us to know which person-to-person projects this church is in charge of. Not as a group administered by somebody else, but specifically the person in my seat. Who is the person at work that you want me to care about? Who is the person on the street that you want me to care about? I pray for clear-eyed vision of your call in this moment this time and I pray that none of us would think ourselves out of your reach whatever we brought today pain sadness guilt sickness we place it in your hands trusting you for the outcome knowing our eternity is secure in the palm of your hand. In Jesus' name, amen.